A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, there was a man named John Williams who scored this little film called Star Wars, and he's been doing so ever since. And today, we're going to talk about it. This is Han Talks First, and this is the music of Star Wars. This is episode 17 of Han Talks First. Like I said, we're talking all about music today. And like I said last week, I am joined by a friend of mine, Durham Cox. Well, hey there. What's going on, man? Not much, man. Just chilling. So have you, uh, have you been on a podcast before? I have not been on a podcast before. No? I've seen them recorded, but I've never been on one myself. No. Okay, cool. Yeah. So first time. Yeah. Well, basically, me and Durham have known each other for a long time. I think you said 14 years yesterday. Is that what it was? Yeah, like seventh grade. So yeah, 14 years. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's bullshit. Yeah. And um, Durham is also a musician, and that's uh, kind of how we uh stayed friends for so long is just over music and stuff and so that's why I have him on today to talk about the music of Star Wars and um he's visiting he's, he doesn't live here but he's moving to California soon which is pretty cool and uh we actually went out to the Star Wars cantina last night Did you have fun I had a ton of fun man give me more of that blue milk please <laughs> it's uh this place called Scum and Villainy, and actually, if any of you guys want to check it out, I posted some of the content on the Han Talks First Instagram, so go check it out there, and if you go under the highlights, click on, I think it's the welcome highlight, and you can see some of the cantina. It's basically supposed to be a replica of the Moss Eisley Space Cantina in A New Hope. And it's really cool. They have themed drinks like blue milk and everything. And uh, it just it feels right when you go in there. And uh, always have friendly people around, Star Wars fans, blah, blah, blah. But it's pretty cool. So we did that. We also went around and had some drinks other places. We had a long night. But it was good. We did have a long night. Uh, yeah. We went from planet to planet and just, I don't know what happened. I like that. Yeah. Planet to planet. Yeah. But um, we're here today. We're recovered. We're hydrated. And we are going to jump right in. Let's, uh, let's start first. with We haven't really talked about Star Wars that much, just me and you. Oh, just you and me? What's, no. What's like? You're definitely the Star Wars big fan out of the two of us. So normally when I have a guest on, I ask them to share their Star Wars story with me. So I'm curious with you, what what does it mean for you? How big of a fan are you? When were you introduced? What yeah. do you think makes Star Wars iconic? I mean, so let's hear it. yeah, for me, it's like, you know, I grew up in a household where my parents, like, they knew what Star Wars was. They saw it when they, you know, were in their 20s, but... 
Oh, when it came out? Like yeah, when it came out, yeah. right. Like, you know, they saw it when it was in theaters, and my dad, like, had seen the entire trilogy, but they were never big into it. They never, like, pushed it on me. So I just kind of found it when I was around, I think, like, five. It was in like the a house. Yeah. Like a VHS. So it wasn't, a, well, no, it was at a friend's house. So oh, okay. it was a friend's house. Friend had it on VHS. And then I went and got, like, some game for Super Nintendo mm-hmm. and, like, you know, all that. So I was into it as a kid. Um, but yeah, it was nothing like that was like thrown in my face being like, yeah, Star Wars, this Star Wars, that like, so as far as it goes, like, I would say I'm like a little more than a casual fan. I'm not like one of those people who just sees it and forgets it, but I'm also not like, you know, going to Comic-Con every other day. Um, (laughs) or starting a podcast, (laughs) right? (laughs) Exactly. Starting a podcast about it. Um, but no, I mean, there are definitely movies that I enjoy. And I think, like you were saying, kind of what makes it so big is there's just so many themes in these movies. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's the same thing with kind of any epic, any kind of, you know, I mean, it was intended to be a space opera kind of thing. And so, you know, you've got your sense of adventure. You've got your, you know, stories about growing up and maturing and kind of figuring out who you are. You know, you have all that in the new trilogy and it's in every single one in some way. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a really it's a really good series in the fact that it really can relate to life in so many ways for so many people. Um, yeah. So many people see themselves as a certain character. Mm-hmm. You know, some people are Han, some people are, you know, Luke, some people are Leia. Um, you know, and I'm it, Han. It, yeah, you are. Yes, you are <laughs> Han. Yes. Who would you oh, characterize yourself myself as? Myself as? Yeah. <laughs> Chewbacca. Not, not Chewbacca. <laughs> no. I mean, you got the hair for it. I got the hair for it. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, yeah, I don't even know what character I would be. That one's a little tough. Um, normally, I would say I'm Han, but in this situation, that does not work. Um, so I guess I'm stuck as Chewie right now. I guess we'll, <laughs> okay. I'm going to have to figure this out. Yeah. Good. Okay, cool. So I think it's nice to finally have a Star Wars uh, bit above casual fan on the show because normally it's just been people who are pretty hardcore people so i think it'll bring in a different perspective Mm -hmm. from you yeah and so like i said we're gonna talk about the music today but there is some things i would like to address before we jump into it first off i recently just met or was introduced to um, one of the guys on Sith Talkers podcast. Okay. And we uh, followed, found each other, followed each other on social media. I've actually listened to his stuff before he reached out to me. And, um, and then we just started talking about Star Wars and how much it means to each other. So it was pretty cool. So uh, I highly recommend... For anybody listening, to go check out Sith Talkers. They're also on Spotify, Apple, all that good stuff. But check them out. Their show is hilarious. It, I like am in tears from laughter every time I listen to it. But uh, Lando's a great guy. We were talking actually about trying to do a collab one day where we can talk about Star Wars. Um, in the meantime, we kind of shared a quick question both of us wanted to answer. So. We both asked each other, if you were a Jedi or Force-sensitive, what would be your strongest Force power? And I also wanted to know from him what color his lightsaber would be. 
So for me, I think my strongest force ability would probably be mind control. I don't really know why, but I just feel like it wouldn't be agility or fighting because I really don't do either of those things. I'm a lazy asshole. <laughs> and um, so I would think I would focus most of my attention on the mind training since I do meditate and I have uh, taken like courses on meditation and stuff like that. So I think that would be my strongest attribute if I was force sensitive. My lightsaber color would be purple. Ever since I saw Mace Windu, Samuel Jackson in the prequels with that purple lightsaber, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. It's the one I have today in my room, and oh, I just really wish I could have. But his uh, hilt on it is really cool, too. So I, I asked this question to Sith Talkers as well, so if you want to hear their answer, go check out uh, their episode, uh, probably coming out the same day this one is. So go check it out. Um, but I'm going to throw that at you, too. What, what would be your strongest force power and uh, your lightsaber color? Yeah, force power, definitely, like, just being able to move objects. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I work out and do all that crap. I'm kind of a douche. So, you know, um, <laughs> you know, we know I'm basic and douchey. So, you know, definitely we're going with, you know, being able to move big objects with the force. Like, that sounds awesome. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I wish in some days, like, you know, someone parked their car on the way. I just want to. Move the fucking thing. <laughs> like, yeah, that'd be great. Um, lightsaber? Uh, hmm. And it doesn't have to be, like, canon. It can be whatever color. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as canon goes, I don't know. Like, I'm still figuring my shit out, so I'm not green yet. But, mm-hmm. you know, definitely I'm going to go with blue for now, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, I, I mean, Obi-Wan uses that, you know, later times as well. So it's kind of uh, interesting, you know. Yeah. Seeing how that worked um, with him, but yeah, I'm definitely I'm go- I'm gonna go with blue for sure. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so again, shout out to Sith Talkers, uh, great dudes, Lando. Uh, glad we got to talk, and hopefully we can do something together later on. Um, I'm also gonna jump into some news really quick because we had a lot of shit go down this week. It was crazy. I was like, I've wanted to record a podcast every time some news drops. So. Uh, the first little bit, uh, we're just going to go ahead and get out of the way. Obi-Wan Kenobi, we're getting a TV show with Ewan McGregor coming back to play Obi-Wan. What network is this on? It'll be on Disney Plus. Oh, Disney Plus. Great. Yeah. Paying for more streaming. And, Love it. <laughs> exactly. So I heard that news and I lost my mind. I mean, it, we all knew it was going to happen. It, it, there was just no way they can't not make that show. It's perfect. He's at the perfect age for it. He's, he wanted to do it, um, and every fan has been asking for that since Disney bought uh, Star Wars in, like, 2012. So we're finally getting it, guys. It's happening. And the sooner I get more news, uh, we're going to talk about it. But all we know right now is that Ewan McGregor signed the paperwork, and the ink is dry. So contract's ready to go, and uh, we'll see what happens. But um, we don't know if it's going to be a miniseries. Uh, a seasonal show, or if it'll be like maybe, maybe a movie. I mean, all we know is we're getting something on Obi Wan Kenobi, so that's pretty sick. Also, if, for any of you guys that watch the Resistance TV show, season two trailer dropped this week as well, and I did not watch the first season because it doesn't look appealing to me, and it's more directed towards kids. But 
damn, the season two trailer blew my mind. It looks heavy and hardcore. So I highly recommend just go go watch the trailer. I still am probably not going to watch the show because it's a little too kitty for me. But uh, the trailer looked really good. Way better than the season one trailer. Um, also, this week we are celebrating Ahsoka Tano's 11-year anniversary of her creation. One of the greatest... Uh, Grest, one of the greatest characters in Star Wars. Um, 11-year-old anniversary. There were some conventions and parties. and uh, Great character. Do you know who Ahsoka is? No okay. idea. <laughs> no, no. So she, she was in that Clone Wars animated show on Cartoon Network. Okay. And that's when we first saw her. Like, she was, she was Anakin's Padawan in that show. Oh, and okay. throughout the show's lifetime you see her as a kid and then she grows up through the show and by the end of the season, she's an adult. And so it's really kind of her story. And uh, I can't remember what species she is, but she's the one, one of those aliens that has like the, those like big dread looking things that come down. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. I've seen it. um, Yeah. But she's really great. And we're going to get more of her in the next season of, Clone Wars coming out soon as well. Um, two more things really quick. I just wanted to talk about Galaxy's Edge. The numbers came in a 3% drop um, since it came out. It's not just Galaxy's Edge. It's all of the Disney parks. So it's not as bad as we thought, guys. But it is not doing well. Uh, Bob Iger said it himself on a investor's call. It's not doing well. Um, the theory is that everyone's scared there's going to be lines. But... I honestly think it's the prices. It's way too high. And have you heard about this stuff? I, I mean, I know about the theme parks and like yeah. everything that's popped up, but I didn't realize there were you know issues mm. with that. Nobody's going. That makes no, Star that makes Wars no sense. Isn't it crazy? What? So there's only one ride, for example. It's okay. the Millennium Falcon ride. Well, that, yeah. And if you go to it, only one person can fly it, and there's four people in the seats. Oh. So if you're... The person in the back seat, you literally don't do anything. You can't use the controls. You just sit and enjoy the oh, ride. Oh, so you can't interact at all. You're just kind of... Right. Apparently, the ride is okay. No one's really raving about it, but there's, like, no one in the park. It's just shops, and everything is, like, insanely priced. If you want to get a lightsaber, you have to pay $200 to get into, like, the lightsaber creation room, and you have to have, like, you make a reservation for it. And if you miss your 15-minute window for your reservation, you don't get your money back. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of nuts. I and, mean, like, you would think they'd lower the price, make it a little mm-hmm. more flexible. I mean, I don't know, you know, Harry Potter-wise, what they do with the wands at those parks, but I'm like, hey, do that model. Sounds see, a lot I've easier. been there twice since moving here. Okay. And that's great. They, ha- they have more than one ride, too. But everything's decently priced. And... um but back on the lightsabers, uh, some more news about it. Uh, people are posting on Twitter and social media that the lightsabers do not work properly. There's been a bunch of people complaining that their lightsabers have uh, broken um, as far as like the light doesn't work in it, the bulb. And it's not just one person making noise. It's a fairly good majority. So not only are you paying $200 for a lightsaber, but it's... Obviously, not the quality you would hope it is for that theme so park. So you're so, paying $200 for just a saber. 
I guess so. there's no light in it. Yeah, at I, all. And again, guys, I'm I'm gonna go in. Uh, let me see. I'm actually going in two and a half weeks, so I'll see it for myself and I'll break it down for you then. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to hate because I haven't experienced any of this myself. Just kind of giving you the news on what I've seen. Last bit of news, which will bring us into our main topic, is last week Don Williams. The brother of John Williams was at a panel for a Jurassic Park music music panel. It's some kind of event. I don't remember what it was. But Don Williams said that his brother's working on the score, and they have to write 135 minutes of score for this movie, which would make it the longest soundtrack in Star Wars history. And he also said that they're bringing in themes from every Star Wars movie before. So we're going to hear bits and pieces of Across the Stars, Duel of Fates, uh, Leia's theme, which was in the trailer. And I hope they bring back the Cantina Band song. That'd be cool, too. But it's interesting that he said this because 135 minutes, if you ratio that to the other soundtracks that were on the previous movies it's looking like we're going to get a three-hour Star Wars movie for The Rise of Skywalker, which I'm very excited about. What do you feel? Do you have any thoughts? What, three hours? Do you care about hours? I mean, time? No, I mean, usually, like, with those movies, they're longer anyway. So, I mean, that's adding, what, a normal, what, 25, 30 minutes to it anyway? Yeah. That's not that bad. I mean, usually three-hour movies are a little overkill, but I think with Star Wars, with such a strong fan base... Everyone being so excited for it, knowing it's like the end of this trilogy, mm -hmm. it makes sense. It's definitely not a problem. Now, see, guys, size doesn't really matter. <laughs> okay. Well, if you're that King Kong movie from like a decade ago, it's a problem. But you know, it's fine. Oh, the Peter Jackson one. Yeah, the one that was like three hours and ten minutes. Yeah, no, bad movie. My goodness. <laughs> um, okay, so that this this brings us into our main topic: uh, the music of Star Wars. John Williams. And, of course, there's been other writers as well, but as far as the movies go, the main movies, it's all John Williams. He was, uh, he was born in Queens. His father was a musician, and it got him to start learning music at a young age. He actually started on piano, and his main discipline was in jazz, which shows a lot in some of his music. And, uh, but, yeah, he started out piano. He's also an amazing guitar player. Have you seen him play guitar? I'm I had or no idea to play guitar he's at all. He's a phenomenal guitar player. It's insane. I had I had no idea. It's I'll have to pull up a clip and show you later, but he's an amazing guitar player. I would love to see him live with anything with a with a band, orchestra, whatever. But um so yeah, he uh the re the reason he got into Do you know how he got into Star Wars? Like how he was the one to No, write for no it? idea. So <clears throat> One sec. I had to swig my coffee. Okay. So before Star Wars, he did a small movie called Jaws. Right. I was like, I know he did Jaws. So I was like, okay. Like, but that was his first big one, though. Right? Yeah, so okay. that was pretty much how he got into Star Wars because Steven Spielberg was friends with George Lucas. Yep. And when he was looking for a composer, he recommended John Williams. And that's how the magic happened. So really, if it wasn't for uh, Spielberg, he, 
I don't know who would be scoring Star I, Wars. I don't want to know. Just, it's hard to, it's weird to think. Like, what if it wasn't John Williams? What would it sound like? Probably some generic movie score. It wouldn't be what as iconic as it is. My theory is it would sound more like... So at that time period for film scores, we were kind of going through a transition into more like electronic heavy synth style with mm-hmm. that kind of movie. So I think they would have picked someone to do that style. And right, would, like more sci-fi rather than mm-hmm. epic, classic, romantic kind of... And it would com- right. completely change the tone of this. Yeah, well, I think that it probably hit people... I mean, it hit people right in the face when... The, I mean, imagine going to the premiere of this movie. You have no idea what the hell it is in the late 70s. And it's just... Da-da. It's like... Bah! And you're like, what the <laughs> hell is this? This is not... It's like, this is not Star Wars. This sounds like yeah. Colonial Wars. Like, I don't know what's <laughs> going on. But no, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it hits you right in the face at the beginning. And it's I think it's what not only this movie, but the industry in general needed. Because we were, like I said, we were coming from just out of the golden age of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Where we were starting to lose that style of film scores. Um, with the the classic writings and the big orchestras and stuff like that. And it was moving into that more electronic style for this type of movie. And so I think in a way, John Williams kind of resurfaced it and brought it back to life um, for this genre of film. And it's kind of continued on today. So let's talk about his... uh, some of the influences for this music. So um, it's very heavily uh, implied or heard that there's a lot of late romantic period influences mm-hmm. in this movie. For those of you who don't know about the periods of music, the romantic period of music was a time where we started getting... It was like like seventeen hundreds or something. Yeah, like that. it's like 17... it's like late seventeen hundreds to around the late eighteen hundreds. About a hundred year period there. Yeah, yeah. And it started really with Beethoven, and it was it was just a, a period of time where music started to have more freedom and uh, form uh, and design. It, there was more dynamics as far as uh, con- contrast and like the changes of. Uh, highs to lows to mm-hmm. many instruments playing at the same time, and it was it was really I think probably the most my favorite period of music and one that kind of changed the game almost. There's more personality in the romantic period. Oh yeah, uh, heavily emotional songs. We also started getting more lyrical contributions to it as well. Uh, like the opera singing, things like that. But basically, that's where a lot of the influence for John Williams' music, I think, came from. And he kind of copies measures of classic compositions yeah. and reinvents them. Right. So it's like, as far stories. as the Romantic period goes, he, you know, like, if people don't know these people, like, look them up. It's You're going to understand why this all goes together. But like, Tchaikovsky, uh, Swan Lake, does all that. You got Chopin, um, all of his nocturnes, which are all like 
very sleepy, dreamy kind of sounding things, you can tell where John Williams <clears throat> really pulls those themes from for, diff- for different things. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of ended with, what's his name? Uh, Strauss, something Strauss, Richard Strauss. Yeah. And that was when uh, we kind of moved out of it into the more modern era of, of music. But um, in addition to that, his influences, um, I think a lot of his early jazz teachings show in some of the music, too, especially in that Cantina Band song. Oh, my God. Yeah. And um, we'll, we'll jump into that later. I got a lot to say on that. Yeah. But um, let's see here. Let's move on to... I guess we'll let's talk about his most recognizable theme, which is the Star Wars fanfare. What goes through your head in that place? It's a march like, right away. Yeah. Like you just like you can tell. Once again, for people that don't know music history, look up John Philip Sousa. Like all the standard American marches that you think of, like little bands with mm-hmm. the bass drum walking down the street. Mm-hmm. Like it's like OG marching band. And like little towns across America, he pulled from all of that. Um, you know, you got your bugle, got your trumpet right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Like verbatim something that John Philip Sousa would have. I'm glad you used. brought that up because nationalism, that was a heavy influence for the romantic period as well. That's mm-hmm. kind of how we got those march songs and things like that. So, yeah, I definitely feel that way as well. And it's just like you just mentioned, it kind of that's what starts the movie. It just hits you in the face with it. And it's like telling you right away, it's not what you expect. Boom. And uh, we're going to, it's going to be like, and it really helps make the movie feel like it is a long time ago. Oh, it does. Yeah. No. When they say, yeah, like a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away, Mm -hmm. you hear music that would have been played, you know, at this point, about 200-ish years ago. Yeah. So it, it, you're automatically, it's just such a throwback to where it's like, oh, yeah, it does feel like a totally different time. And he does that with the music throughout, you know, throughout the movies with mm-hmm. different, you know, genres and stuff. So, yeah. Now, do you know about the song, I mean, sorry, the score from another movie that sounds very similar to it, to this opening fanfare? Which movie would that be? Uh, people say he copied it from it. Let me, let me look huh. up real quick because... I can't remember. It was some kind of old movie. Hold on one second. I, mean, I could see that being the case. I mean, in the 40s and 50s, like you were saying earlier, I mean, you had orchestras, you had, you know, the little bands. It was the same kind of, you know, structure that he used. King's Row. Have you ever heard of that movie? No, never. Okay, so never. let me see if this plays. It probably won't play. Okay. For anybody... Anybody out there who's interested in what it sounds like, just go look up King's Row uh, opening theme. I'll play it for you later. I can't do it while I'm recording okay. the audio. But um, it's weird. Have you heard those theories that he kind of plagiarizes a bunch of people's works? No. As well. There's, like, not- there's people out there that really just hate John Williams for no fucking reason. And they they're, they call him a... A plagiarizer and uh, steals people's works and stuff like that. But I mean, there is homages and references to other works, but that's kind of with every piece of music 
every piece of art, you yeah, know. That's yeah, how it works in general. Yeah. Reinterpretation mm-hmm. of sounds. And so I don't really see that as stealing. I just see it as, hey, I really like this. I'm gonna implement it into my music and uh take it a new direction. Yeah. Um and every everybody does that. It's <laughs> no I it mean, doesn't make him a thief. No. I mean movies do that, pop music does it, country mm-hmm. music like any and in art, it's the same thing. You just build on what other people have done before. Exactly. So when people are getting mad at him for using a certain horn at a certain time in a song, it's like, yeah, yeah, like give him a break, guys. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> so I want to I want to use this opportunity to share some quotes from John Williams on his process. So this is just from an Arts Beat article uh, from the New York Times. Uh, this was a, a relatively recent interview. Uh, one of the, I just want to share a little bit of it. One of the questions was, uh, just tell us about your creative process. His response is, I develop from very early on a habit of writing something every day, good or bad. There are good days, there are less good days, but I do a certain amount of pages, it seems to me, before I can feel like the day has been completely served. When I'm working on a film, of course, it's a six-day-a-week affair. And when I'm not working on films, I always like to devote myself to some piece, some musical project that gives me a feeling that I'm maybe contributing in some small way, maybe more importantly, learning in the process. So I like that. I kind of relate to that myself a little bit. You know, kind of try and write something every day. It doesn't have to be good. It's not always good. No. You... you not, nothing's always gold. You always, and I think that's why we get so much good music from him, because he gets all the bad ideas out as well. Yeah, you got to get those out too. No, I mean, and this is kind of funny, but like, <clears throat> it's the same thing, you know. In any form of music, it's something. Actually, Ed Sheeran said one time, "Is you run a old faucet, you're going to get a bunch of dirty water at first, and those are your songs and your themes and everything that are terrible. Mm-hmm. But if you repeatedly keep writing those, eventually you're going to get something good." Mm-hmm. Um, eventually you're gonna have that clean water and then you're gonna just bust out a bunch of really good songs or whatever you know whatever you're working on whether it's music or not yeah yeah so it's like absolutely you know that's the best way to do it take a few hours a day mm-hmm. especially if you're john williams and it's your job yeah write six days a week take like one day as a breather and just keep going yeah he also says he works only early in the morning like that's he always starts then and he never writes at night i think that's interesting too yeah I, that that's most of my best stuff comes out at night, like when I'm borderline tired and, you know, everyone else is like quieted down for the day. So I think that's interesting, too, that he doesn't work at night. It is interesting, especially when you think, you know, a lot of the Star Wars universe takes place in space where it's kind of dark. Right. And for yeah. me, you know, when I write, um, my environment kind of affects my mood and kind of what comes out. Mm-hmm. So if I'm like, oh, I'm writing something for space, I would think, you know... Give me like some dimly lit studio with like a red light or something. Yeah. Cause you know, or have me ride at night. So I feel a little bit more tired, but I guess he would just, I don't know, dream it and then just write it when he woke mm-hmm. up. That's what it sounds like. Well, one more quote from him. This is from gramophone. Uh, it says with uh, the star Wars films, one is always faced with the challenge of creating so much energy with the orchestra because we have spaceships running and cannons firing and the orchestra blazing away. In this case, the challenge and opportunity was to combine the modalities of Orientalism that there's pretty much understood internationally 
with the broader emotional palette, I think I can put it that way, of the Western Symphony Orchestra and bring them together in a very delicate and even fragile kind of setting, um, at least by this contrast to me. That seemed like a little funky worded quote, but uh, I'm sure it sounded better when he's saying it. But right. <laughs> so I was kind of hoping when I was looking some stuff up to find a little bit more detailed about his process. Like, I'm curious, how do you think he does it? Does he write everything on piano and then he puts it on paper and lets an orchestra play it? I would say probably the original films back in the day, he definitely was either on a piano or he had someone there maybe with a violin or something basic just yeah. to help with those themes. But I'm assuming most of that would be done on piano. Um, and he probably was recording, you know, just on tape, uh, layering all the themes on piano and then, you know, handwriting and doing everything um, yeah. versus the more recent films. I mean, he can pull up so many sound designs on his computer now. So the writing mm. process for him has definitely changed, but for sure it was, he'd sit at a piano, get a basic theme, and then just build around it from there. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone out there finds some interviews or videos of his process more detailed, I'd love to see it. Please send it over. Um, so, yeah, what? let's talk about why these his scores, why his themes, why are they so iconic? And I think one of the reasons is because of his use of let motifs. And for those of you who don't know what a leitmotif is, it's essentially a short, constantly reoccurring musical phrase that's associated with a person, a place, an idea. And a few examples of that would be, for example, <clears throat> Leia's theme. Dun, 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 da, 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 da. So every time Leia's in a scene, we'll typically hear that phrase done in different ways depending on what the mood is of that scene. So I think that's why most of his songs or his music is so iconic because he's an amazing melody lighter, writer. Uh, yeah. Any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, no, definitely. Um, and it's something he took actually from like classical opera. Mm -hmm. um, that's something they did then when a new character would come on stage, they would have that. So he, he stole that straight from opera um, mm -hmm. and just ran with it. Um, and that's probably how his writing process went. He would, you know, I don't know if he had a script ahead of time or understood who characters were, mm -hmm. um, but if he did, he could probably read into who they were and then just, you know, come up with a little motif that's like, oh, like it's supposed to be this woman who she might seem fragile up front, but she's actually strong. So it's like having, you know, a little motif that can represent that whole thing in just a few short bars of music. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of the chief importance of uh, for a, a light motif is that it must be strong enough for a listener to latch onto while also being flexible enough to undergo that variation and development along with the progression of the story. Uh, an example of this that I wanted to share is the Imperial March song, which everybody knows. Yeah. Which leads into the Vader theme. But that is also Kylo Ren's theme done in a different way. It's... Uh, 
it just takes the accents really. So the Kylo's theme is bum 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 bum. It's just a different variation of the Imperial March, which is so smart. He recycles these older themes he had for the newer characters. So that's what I'm talking about of having a leitmotif undergo variations along with the development of the story. And that's why they also sound familiar, and we latch on to them, because it's somewhat familiar. Another example is Princess Leia's theme, again. It's also Obi-Wan's death music, just done in a different way. Go back and listen to it. It's really cool, and it just makes sense as you see it, because we start with the lighter emotion and then it builds up to a more dramatic one with Obi-Wan's death. Typically each movie he does there he uses about 11 light motifs. That's the average. We're not going to talk about all of them today, but those are just some examples and one of the reasons why I believe makes his music stand out from others. Are there any that jump out to you that you think of or remember? What, as far as, like, you know, from the films? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that Duel of Fates one um, mm-hmm. really, you know, comes into play a lot. Um, you know, it comes in before a lot of the battle scenes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the ones that you, you know it when you hear it. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's doing a lot of things musically, not even just composition-wise, but sound engineering, so many ways of putting light against dark um, yeah. with different motifs throughout the whole piece. Yeah. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, just a couple facts about the actual performance and recordings of these songs is he typically uses about 100 players and 100 singers. Um, for The Phantom Menace, for example, it was 100 players and 120 opera singers for that Duel of the Faith song. He used 120 vocalists at one time. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I'm surprised he just didn't take like 20 and then just like repitched and layered it. Like I, it wouldn't sound as authentic, mm-hmm. but budget wise, I mean, his music, his music budget alone was that of like a lot of small movies, probably. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He was he was probably like, this is what I want, and everyone's like, yes, you get it all, right? Like, like no, no one pays, no one pays that, pays that much, pays that much, much for movies now. Like you don't see someone like a Hans Zimmer today just like. Being a bunch of singers, they just sit at a computer. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of nuts. Yeah. And um, uh, again, this goes back to that romantic style of of performance because the average number of players in romantic orchestras was 100, 120. Um, So he not only uses the the musical influences, but also the formatting uh, for how to perform and record these songs. So... What, as far as like the instruments and the performers, when you think of Star Wars music, what instrument do you think of the most? Like what, what instrument stands out to you? I mean, the one that sticks out right away is the trumpet. You know, you got that theme right off the bat um, mm-hmm. in every film. So, you know, the whole brass section mm-hmm. is what stands out to me and probably what stands out to most casual fans mm-hmm. um, who don't know Star Wars as well. But, you know, they know Imperial March. They know, you know, basic themes um, from the film. So, yeah, I mean, that brass section is really what brings that epic, adventurous 
kind of feel right off the bat. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, as a musician, I can sit there and understand, like, in other scenes, what which ones are important, which ones I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, when they're working with, like, the Ewoks, and you got, like, the little marimba, and, like, you got, like, all these little themes and stuff going on. Um, but, yeah, the brass is what I think pulls most of it together, for sure. For me, it's a percussion. Uh, I think it's so interestingly used in these songs, um, along with the the lower-toned instruments. Um, the most of any instrument in his, for as far as his performance, is percussion. He He uses over 40 different percussion instruments in his scores. And typically half of those... Uh, or th- there's 20 players and they each have two items and they're heavily used. Uh, one, eg- one example that I find it so appealing to me is in that main opening theme, mm-hmm. the drums in that, it just kind of adds like a whole nother layer underneath it all to kind of keep it going strong. Like when you hear the Bum, bum, da, da, dun, dun, dun. Behind it, you have the percussion going bum, brum, brum, bum, 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 bum. It's just so like, right. it just keeps your energy up. Oh, it does. Yeah, and, no, it keeps it moving. Because if that wasn't there, it would feel a lot thinner. Um, you know, thinner, it wouldn't yeah, have that word. excitement. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. I just find it interesting. I'm curious as to what instruments he plays i know piano guitar and violin but i'm sure he plays some of the other things too yeah i, he, I, I mean would... he definitely knows if he's using that much that much percussion he definitely is familiar enough with it maybe mm-hmm. maybe not formal training but enough to know how to play basic things on a snare drum his brother is one of the percussionists in his there we go. groups nice and um yeah so let's ju- let's jump into this cantina band song because it's the one that kind of sticks out from the others and is a little different. Um, you were saying some interesting thoughts on it earlier. You want to go ahead? Yeah. So, I mean, kind of with that cantina band, I mean, right up front, you're getting that 1930s, 1940s jazz, big band kind of style. Um, but what happens is there's different themes, even just in the cantina song. Um, he's going from big band jazz. Then he goes to like, West Coast, California, a little bit quicker kind of feel. And you got like gypsy jazz thrown in there. And all of a sudden you have steel drums. So it's like he's hopping between so many variations of jazz. Um, and that's, I think he just had fun, so much fun with that. That probably was the most fun for him being a jazz pianist, being like, oh, I can arrange every popular form of jazz from that time period and throw it into one piece. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a lot of jazz influence there. And I think he had fun with it, especially since that's how he started, was from being a jazz pianist. Um, So what's funny about the history of this song is when George Lucas pitched the idea to him of what he wanted, what he heard in his head, this is what he told John Williams. He said, imagine several creatures in a future century finding some 30s Benny Goodman swing band music in a time capsule under a rock or someplace. How would these aliens attempt to interpret this music by using their own instruments? And that was what his uh, pitch was 
to write this particular song. And I think it shows. Oh, like you 100, said. 100%. There's like the four different styles of jazz. So these aliens are trying to interpret it. So it's not going to be consistent. And that's why it, it flows so differently. Right. And it also still does have a somewhat foreign vibe to it, which makes it fit that cantina scene. Mm-hmm. For sure. And what else is very important about that song and what makes it stick out too is because it's the only, I think, it's one of the few diegetic songs in Star Wars. I think there's a couple other ones. There's the one in Force Awakens that J.J. Abrams helped write. Um, for those of you who don't know what diegetic music is, it's music that is that occurs as part of the action. So it's actually a part of the story. It's not the accompanying music in the background. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah. No, I mean, it's going to be something that's actually occurring in your story or in your film. Um, so, I mean, like... It, it can be heard by the characters. It, the right. It can be heard by the characters. The characters can't hear a theme. Um, maybe mm-hmm. Yoda can, but I don't think anyone else could. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think, you know, especially... In a lot of films today, you're getting, you know, stories about different rock bands and things. So, like, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody, obviously all of that, you know, fits in that category because it's happening in the story. Yeah. But in Star Wars, you know, they're not traveling around listening to music. Right. Right. If they did, I think that'd be cool. That'd be a nice little change. Cool dynamic, in my opinion. That'd be kind of funny. That um, would be, yeah. Yeah, you know. Um, but he wants to make it feel futuristic and old at the same time. So... You know, they don't have a radio that plays music. You have to go see the band at the cantina, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So to kind of sum up what we've been talking about right now, mm-hmm. um, I believe John Bi- Williams, John Williams, I believe uh, John Williams was kind of the beginning of modern American film scoring. So not only did he like shape how we heard our favorite movies, but it provided music for films to influence on other composers. And they kind of, I believe he brought in a lot of inspiration for other songwriters. Are there any other ones that stick out to you that could kind of be show a little bit of John Williams? Yeah. I mean, you've got the, you know, I mean, uh, Hans Zimmer is the big, big name now. Um, he took a ton mm-hmm. of influence, absolutely took a ton of influence from them. Um, and just kind of expanded on it with a little more technology. Um, mm-hmm. and then, uh, the guy who did a lot of Tim Burton's movies, um, Daniel something or look it up. Let's I see. Yeah. Which movies in particular? Uh, Oh, Daniel Robert Elfman. Yeah, 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 Danny Elfman. Yeah, so he took, he went a little bit creepier with the sounds, but he went with, you know, a lot of piano and string-focused music. Yeah. Um, really focusing on romantic period again, like, you know, like John Williams did. Um, so well, definitely, he did Spider-Man, too. Yeah, yeah. So he's done a lot of very oh, different Avengers, things. Age of Ultron. Wow. What, El- he did? Yeah. That's crazy. I didn't know he did that. Because he's done things like along the lines of like Coraline, uh, Corpse Bride, Corpse Bride, right? Like the really creepy animated he did. Um, what Edward is Scissorhands, right? Edward Scissorhands, Big Fish, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Okay, so now that I know his work, yeah, I can see the influences as oh, well. Yeah, I mean, everything's got a weird, creepy little piano or like violin motif of some kind. Yeah, um, and he does that with he does that with his characters. Edward Scissorhands, he's got a little motif in there. Mm-hmm. Um, people don't realize it because it's not Star Wars where it's more apparent, mm-hmm. but it's there. Um, you know, and it's something they do in a lot of horror movies just in general. So he kind of took the John Williams style, mixed it with like kind of that Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street thing, mm-hmm. and put them together. You know, which yeah. I thought, I think that's really cool. He's definitely one of my favorite composers for sure. Uh, another one for me is, uh, let me see. I can't, I can't remember his name, but I remember the movie. Bear with us, guys. I'm looking it up. Okay. Howard Shore. Are you familiar with his work at all? I know the name, but what films? Let's see what films he's done. Okay, he did Lord of the Rings. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, that's probably. <laughs> I was the like, biggest where do part. I recognize? Yeah, yeah, that's huge. Uh, Silence of the Lambs. Uh, most notably for me is The Fly. Have you ever seen The Fly? I have not seen The Fly. Oh my no. god, Jeff Goldblum. It's a great movie. So, what I love about uh, Howard Shore is his his use of leitmotifs as well. So in The Fly, for example, he has this beautiful uh, theme for the character. And what's funny about it is I was writing something for my show um, that was more of a darker-toned Star Wars theme that I was going to put for a character called Darth Bane. And... I was going to play it on the podcast sometime once I finish recording it for you guys. But um, the motif I had for him was, how did it go? It was like, uh, and what's funny is I watched the fly <clears throat> For the first time, maybe three months ago, and I noticed that he used this, this very similar theme, and it was also on violin, and it went that was the opening for mine, and it was just I mean, so that sounds like the opening to James Bond. Okay, but just, I think I'll have to play it yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't like, sing it correctly, right. but but like you know those notes, the way that pattern worked i was mm-hmm. like wait a second that's the same <laughs> yeah and so there it's you weird. go again guys that's like the whole thing with like uh john williams like being a copycat you know it's it's there's only like so many notes you can use and arrange together there's gonna be other reflections of that in other works but uh howard shore definitely has heavy influence from john williams uh, go check out some of his works if you're not already familiar with it um before we wrap up, uh, I want to hear what you guys' thoughts are on John Williams, the music of Star Wars, whatever you, whatever uh, comes to your mind. Uh, share it in the comments. Uh, tag me on social media. Tag John Williams so he can watch this and give his critique. <laughs> and tag me so I can work for him. Please. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, also, one, the... Biggest uh, composer that is the closest to John Williams is Kevin Kiner. 
And for those of you out there who watch the animated shows, that's not John Williams scoring it. That's Kevin Kiner. He came in on The Clone Wars, and he's done some other television work, but I think he's the closest we have to John Williams. John Williams says this Episode Nine is the last Star Wars film he's ever going to do. After that, I think it needs to be Kevin Kiner for the rest of his days because he's one of the greatest uh, Star Wars composers I know. As far as works of his to start looking at, let me see here. I would recommend checking out... So if you go to the Rebels Season 2 soundtrack, there is... The Journey into the Star Cluster. I highly recommend checking that song out. It's a beautiful song. starts off with violins, and the contrast from the beginning to the end is its really interesting. And I wanted to bring that up, too, about John Williams. His songs, again, going back to the heavy dynamics and contrast of the pitches and tones, it usually his songs usually always start off really soft and end on a really loud ending note. Or they start off really loud and then they end on the softer note. Oh, yeah. No, there's there's so much contrast throughout. Um, you know, he starts the little motif. It's very apparent, usually by itself. Mm-hmm. Builds around it. Goes into so many different versions and variations. And then either it ends with, a, like you said, a big bang, bunch of cymbals. He throws timpanis on it. Or it mm-hmm. goes back and just slows back down and goes right into that motif at the end. Yeah. Um, kind of leaves you hanging. A little more suspense. Kind of a bit of a creepier reminiscent feel versus just a boom it's done yeah yeah so um i just wanted to share real quick my some of my favorite scores of his are the across the stars theme and ray's theme i think ray's theme is one of my favorites and that's really the reason why he's still working on star wars is because he said when he heard about the character ray and her journey he already had an idea for it and after The Force Awakens came out, uh, he, wa- he said he would do Episode 7, um, but he wasn't confirming himself for 8 or 9. And then once 8 started going into production, he said he doesn't want anyone else to write for Rey because he feels so connected to that character's theme. And it's one of my favorites. So go listen to that today too, guys. It's the one that starts off with the little flutes and the bum, 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 Yeah. Very it, Harry Potter. It, it, yeah. Like when I, when we listened to it right before we started this, cause I, I, I've heard it, but I was like, which one is it? Mm-hmm. Um, but right when I heard it, I thought of like the cute little theme at the beginning of Lord of the Rings, like in, at the Shire. Oh yeah. It's kind of spritzy, yeah. fluty, folky kind of. Yeah. And then it goes into this big epic thing later. So, mm-hmm. you know, the song, takes you on this journey of, you know, cute little girl that no one knows who she is yet. Mm-hmm. And it builds into, you know, all these trials and tribulations throughout the song, all this suspense. Mm-hmm. And then it goes back to that theme. Um, so it kind of, you know, that whole theme, it's just character development mm-hmm. the whole time. Yeah. Whenever I think of John Williams, I think of Peter and the Wolf and the music that went with that and mm, yeah. just the use of light motifs. But uh, in general, guys, I think that's why his music works, because it's very character-driven music. You know, when you watch a story, you want to have good characters in it. That's the only way we can connect to their journey and their development and the progress that 
contributes to their story. And I think that's why his music stands out so well, too, is because every character has their own theme. And when they come together, so do the themes. And they, the different dynamics of them, the way they're used in reflecting in a scene. If it's heavy action, uh, the same motif will be used, but in a, a stronger way or with a different instrument. So overall, I think that's why his music kind of sticks out, why it works, especially for stories like Star Wars. Um, are there any of you, before we head out, what are some of your favorites by him? What, favorites by... John Williams. John Williams, what? It doesn't have to be Star Wars, too. It doesn't it have be... to be Star Wars? I mean, yeah, as far as scores go, I mean, he did, he did like the OG Superman movies. Yeah. From like the 70s and 80s. So that whole theme, it's like... Man, mm-hmm. how'd you like he, everything he's done is so epic. So he's done that. Um, and I mean, for me, those are the big ones. It's the old ones. It's the Jaws. It's Star Wars. It's Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, what are more like some of the more recent ones? Because I know he still does c- composition, but it's more sparingly now. It's not as consistent as it used to be. Recent ones, uh, I guess you could say Indiana Jones. Oh, true. Um, E.T., what was that after? That was the 80s, right? Yeah, that was like mid, maybe early 80s. Man, he's still... We're, we're, not, we're old. We're not that old. Um. <laughs> he still writes um, for Steven Spielberg. So he just did The Post last oh, okay. year. Right. But like, um, I think it's the same thing with Spielberg's career. They're kind of both like, you know, on the tail end. So it's a lot less often you hear their names. Yeah, I, yeah. I think he's going to retire after episode nine. Oh, um, How old is he anyway? I mean, he's ancient. Interesting. I think he's like 85. Oh, Let yeah. See. Yeah, he's been doing this forever. Um, How old are you? He He's 87. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he's still... He's still kicking going, it, man. He's man. still touring and all that. I would, I, love I would to not see him be live. touring. Nope. I'd be sitting at a piano <laughs> all day. I'd just be like, I, I'm like, someone fly me in my private jet to the studio with the orchestra. I'm going to sit the whole time. I would not move. No. Do you have any last thoughts before we sign out? Uh, I don't know. This was fun. It's weird being on a podcast. I'm going to be honest. I'm like, this is, no. But, uh, you know, as far as things on John Williams, just kind of, you know, there's times I would love to write for film. And so he's, yeah. he's the first name that comes to anyone's head when they're like, ooh, I want to write for TV or film or even for, you know, theater. John Williams is the first name that comes up for anybody who wants to do yeah. composition today, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that he's probably my favorite, and then right below him would be James Horner, then Kevin Kiner, and Hans Zimmer. Uh, it's, it's hard. It's hard to uh, put a list out of it, but he's definitely one of the greats. Oh, yeah. John Williams, we love you. We uh, don't want you to retire, but we understand if you have to. Love to see him live sometime. Uh, guys, that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. This was episode 17 of Han Talks First. Reach out to me on social media. Tell me your Star Wars story. Use the hashtag Han Talks First uh, so you can get my attention. Let's talk some Star Wars. Leave a rating on Apple if you can and uh, share it with your friends. So uh, we'll talk to you next week. May the Force be with you.